Uh, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, but here's a warning. Uh, we're not going to just be in Isaiah. We're also going to be in Micah, Zechariah, the Psalms. Uh, we're going to kind of be all over the place. So uh, uh, put your uh, Bible seatbelt on. We're going to be hitting a lot of different passages. Well, as Jeff said at the top of the service this morning, uh, all summer long we are going through uh, this series called Good Question. And many of you have submitted questions to me saying, hey, what about this uh, in the Bible? Hey, what about this as it relates to the church? What about this as it relates to our Christian faith? What about this as it relates to Jesus? And so we're kind of looking at your questions and trying to answer some of uh, your questions this summer. Now, I will say that that the um, question on the table this morning uh, is probably uh, the most uh, popular question, if you will, or uh, a question that I get asked a lot, either explicitly or implicitly. And the, uh, the question uh, on the table this morning uh, really, I think, has been inspired by your reading through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Uh, and the question I continue to hear uh, is, what in the world, as Jesus followers, do we do with the Old Testament? Anybody had that question? Yeah, I mean, a lot of you have had that question. What do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with all those wars, all those battles, all those uh, rituals, all those um, sacrifices? What do we do with all those stories of those people in the Old Testament? So that's the question on the table this morning. So I'm going to invite us to pray as we consider that question. What do we do with the Old Testament as Jesus followers? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to gather in your sanctuary, in your creation this morning. God, as we reflect on many passages in the Old Testament this morning, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week, uh, a couple uh, members of my family and I were traveling in another state, and we were traveling through small-town America, and we were coming around a corner, and I saw this garden up ahead, lots of beautiful flowers, and in this garden uh, was a, a little waterfall and um, some decorations, and it looked really nice. And in the midst of it all were these two black stone tablets. And on those tablets, of course, were the Ten Commandments. And I got to thinking about how over the past 20 years or so, that state capital after state capital through lawsuits have had the Ten Commandments removed, uh, and there's still cases that are ongoing uh, with these Ten Commandments doing uh, in front of the state capital and all sorts of other public places. But in this small town, they still had up the Ten Commandments. And I thought to myself, um, you know, it's kind of sad that we now are taking down the Ten Commandments from many uh, state capitals, uh, courthouses around the country. But another part of me thought to myself, well, does it really matter? I mean, the Ten Commandments, of course, are in the Old Testament, right? 
And we are Jesus followers. We believe in the New Testament. We follow uh, the teachings of Jesus. So does it really matter all that much? And so I thought I would just ask that question to you guys this morning. What do we do with the Ten Commandments? Do we follow them? Do we ignore them? Or do we just do our best to kind of pay attention to them? So this is the interactive part of the sermon. Do we follow the Ten Commandments as Jesus followers? Do we uh, ignore the Ten Commandments as Jesus followers? Do we uh, just do our best to follow the Ten Commandments as Jesus followers? Yeah, we're not sure, right? We are all over the map. And this is why we're having the conversation this morning about the Ten Commandments. And I'll just ask you, okay, for those of you who said, yes, we follow the Ten Commandments, my next question for you is, well, what do we do with the rest of the law in the Old Testament? The other 613 laws that are woven into the Old Testament scripture, do we follow those too? We don't read those, <laughs> What about dietary laws? Do we follow the dietary laws as Jesus followers? That means no shellfish, no lobster, no crab, you know, none of that good stuff. That's in the Old Testament. What about uh, dietary uh, laws of things like pork? There, you know, as, as a, a Jewish person, you're not supposed to eat pork. What about the rituals such as ritual bathing? After you've become ceremonially unclean, do we, are we supposed to follow those things as well? What about clothing? Cotton and polyester, it's a no-no in the Old Testament laws. There's lots of, lots of these Old Testament laws. We ask ourselves, well, what in the world are we supposed to do these things? How about tattoos? Not supposed to do it. According to the Old Testament, and some of you I know are covering them up as I speak. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Or what about the, the, the Old Testament law of lending money to other people without interest? We all think that's a really good one, right? Unless you're the lender handing it out to someone else, right? You're like, oh no, I'm charging interest. Well, it's an Old Testament law. Six by the time Jesus came on the scene, there were 613 laws. What do we do with all these laws? And the bigger question, of course, is what do we do with the content of the Old Testament? Of course, our Bibles, about two-thirds of the Bible, is the Old Testament. Do we just get rid of it? Do we just ignore it? What in the world do we do with the Old Testament? Just read the New Testament and follow the New Testament. I thought I would begin this morning uh, by kind of explaining it this way to give you a little bit of context and background. Shortly after God created the world, uh, he created people. And, as it, and the Bible tells us, the Old Testament tells us, and, it, and it, they were, it was very good. Things were really, really good. The creation was wonderful. The people were amazing until sin entered into the world. And people literally turned their backs on God. They walked away from God. And, and every time God reached out to them, they, they looked at God and said, Nah, God, we got it. We're good. We don't want to be in relationship with you. We want to do our own thing. That's the definition of sin, right? We put I, myself, in the midst of everything in life. The life becomes all about me. 
And so every time God reached out to God's children, God's people, they just are like, ah, okay, God, and then, but not really. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And this went on for generation after generation. And God continued to reach out to God's people. And they would have a relationship for a short time. And then they would turn their backs on God and said, no, I'm just going to do my own thing. So in the Old Testament, we read in the book of Genesis, one day God said, you know what? I really want a relationship with my people again. So God said, God has got the whole world in his hands, right? We know that song. God's got the whole world and he says, he said, I'm going to go find a righteous person, somebody who is really special on the earth. So God looked at all the earth, all the world, and he could not find a righteous people on the earth. And God said, well, I'll just find one person, one person who wants to be in a relationship with me. So God looked all over the world and God could not find a single person on the planet that he made who loved him and wanted to be in relationship with him. So God looked at that earth and he said, well, I'm going to go to that guy. His name is Abram. So God shows up to that one guy, Abram. And Abram was not a God worshiper. He was a pagan. He was worshiping other gods, gods made out of stone, gods made out of wood. He was doing his own thing. And God came to Abram one day and said, Abram, I want to have a special relationship with you. We're going to call it a covenant relationship. And it's going to work like this. I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And Abram's like, yeah, it's just me and Sarah. And God said, that's okay. We're going to start with you and your wife, Sarah. Let's go for a walk. And let me tell you and teach you a few things. And so God took Abram and he said, by the way, you're no longer Abram. I'm going to call you Abraham. And we're going to go on this journey. We're going to go on this walk together. And someday you are not going to just be Abraham and Sarah, but you are going to be an entire nation. I will be your God and you will be my people. Abraham said, you know, we're kind of getting up there in age. We're beyond childbearing years. God said, I got it. I'm going to take care of it. And that's the story, of course, of how things began with just one man who was not a God worshiper. He was a pagan, but God said, I am choosing you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Well, after some time, uh, Abraham lost faith like everybody else loses faith, right? In God. And so Abraham, when he lost faith in God, he struggled. He started going in other directions. In fact, in the Old Testament, it tells us on two separate occasions, Abraham was worried about his own life. So he took his wife, Sarah, and gave her away to some folks and said, she's my sister, He denied his own wife. Abraham was not a great husband in that moment, right? He was looking out for old number one. And this is how the story of God creating uh, this nation began. But it got even worse. Because as time went on, Abraham and Sarah weren't having a baby. So Abraham, uh, his wife said to him, Hey, I got an idea. You've got a girlfriend. Why don't you go sleep with her? So Abraham slept with his girlfriend, and they had a baby. This is the story of God's people. That one person, Abraham. But God was faithful and forgiving and loving. 
And he took care of things in spite of Abraham and Sarah and their faithlessness. And this went on for generations. And they had a child uh, miraculously. And there were more people and more people and more people. And over and over what we read throughout the Old Testament is that no matter how many times God's people sin, no matter how many times God's people mess up, no matter how many times God's people turn their back on God, God welcomes them back into a loving relationship. He looks at them and says, I I love you. I forgive you. I will be your God. You will be my people. God rescues his people over and over and over. That's the story of the Old Testament. And you probably know one of the most famous examples of God rescuing his people. Many generations later, the Israelites, God's people, there they were enslaved in Egypt. And God calls another man, another broken, sinful man. This guy was a murderer. He was on the run. His name, of course, was Moses. And God came to Moses and said, I'm going to use you to set my people free. I'm going to rescue my people again because they have turned their backs on me. And so goes the story of Moses and the Exodus. And this goes on and on and on. Throughout the Old Testament, the storyline is this. God's people are screw-ups. God's people turn their back on God. God's people are faithless. In fact, every single story you read in the Old Testament, there are no heroes. There's nobody that saves the day. There's nobody that was so faithful. All of them are broken and sinful people. There is only one hero in the Old Testament, and it is God. And so the Jewish people have gathered these documents together to chronicle their lives, their history as God's people. Over and over, the story goes, the people sinned against God. God forgave them and welcomed them back into a relationship. They had a wonderful relationship for a while, and then the people sinned. And the cycle continues over and over and over. The Old Testament is the story of God's people, the Jews. And then we hear this line time and time again, I will be your God and you will be my people. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we read where God comes to the Jewish people and say, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out, fan across the world, go across the communities, tell everybody about me, Yahweh. Go make converts to Yahweh. That doesn't happen. That was not God's plan. God, in fact, was very exclusive from all the people on the planet. God's plan was not just on the front end to, to just rescue everybody. He was after one people group, the Jewish people. And he said, you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to the nations. It was a very exclusive relationship between God and God's people, the Jewish people. That's the story of the Old Testament. So I want to be clear this morning. The Old Testament was written for the Jewish people. I don't know if we have any Jewish people here this morning. If you're a Gentile, if you're a non-Jew, the Old Testament was not written for you. 
It was written for the Jewish people. And while it was written for the Jewish people, and it was not written for you or me, the Gentiles, it is helpful to us to really understand who God is. The best way I can describe the Old Testament is a relationship. Now, I've got an older brother, uh, Dennis. Anybody you have older brothers or sisters? All right. If you've got an older brother or sister, you know what I'm talking about. When I was a kid growing up, uh, my brother Dennis was three years older than me. He still is. And uh, as we were growing up, one of the wonderful things about uh, having an older brother or sister is that they, you, get to, you get to stand back, right? You younger siblings, you get to stand back and watch your older siblings. Um, here, we got to take care of business. Come on up, Ellie. Come on. Did you, you want the ball? Here, I'll throw the ball to you. We're all done with that sermon illustration. It's all good. One of the wonderful things about having an older brother or sister is as a younger sibling, we get to stand back and watch. We get to watch them make mistakes. We get to watch them uh, as they interact with our parents. We get to see all the the, the ways in which they are breaking the boundaries and staying within the boundaries. And we can just sit under the radar, right? I mean, it is awesome being a younger sibling, because whenever I watch my brother, uh, Dennis, make mistakes, and he made mistakes, I was taking notes. I was paying attention. Don't do that. Or if I'm going to do what he did, I'm just going to be a little bit sneakier about it, because I know how to get away with stuff. Right? All you younger siblings know exactly what I'm talking about. And in many ways, this is this il- the, the illustration for me, is that the Jewish people are our older brothers and sisters. We get to read about their story and their relationship with God. They learn about boundaries. We get to learn about the mistakes that they make. We get to learn about all the ways in which they follow after God and fall away from God. We have this wonderful opportunity as the younger siblings, as the Gentiles, to look, to watch, to consider, to learn So that how we also can be in relationship with God. Because one of the things we learn about the Old Testament is the character of God, their heavenly father, who is also, by the way, of course, our father. So we get to learn what it means to be children of God and what our God, what our Father approves of, what our Father, what our God disapproves of, what are the boundaries, and how we are called to interact uh, within and live within those boundaries. So do you hear what I'm saying? The Old Testament was not written for you, but the Old Testament was written to help you. And that's where I want to spend our time this morning as we think a little bit about kind of framing this up. You know, the Apostle Paul, I think, really um, uh, clarified uh, this relationship. Paul writes this to his young protege, uh, Timothy. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love this passage of scripture that the Old Testament, while it wasn't written for me, it's useful for me. It's useful for you. And so as we think about, you know, maybe I've kind of burst your bubble. Some of you are kind of probably sitting here this morning a little irritated with me. Well, my, my mom gave me this little plaque with Jeremiah 29, 11 on it, right? Some of you got that plaque. That wasn't written for you. It was written for the Jewish people. God does have plans for you. And God knows your plans. Those, are, those things are true. But Jeremiah 29, 11 was not written for you. It was written for God's people the Jews. So what are Christians to do? What are we supposed to do with the Old Testament? And there's actually a lot I could say this morning. And so uh, I'm only going to say part of it or share part of it with you this morning. I'm going to, uh, this is going to, I'm making this into a two-part sermon series. Next weekend, I'm going to talk more about this very same topic without my beach ball that has disappeared. The world is gone to the playground or somewhere fun. But one of the ideas I really want to camp out on and spend time in this morning is that the Old Testament, while it was not written for you, but it is helpful for you, everything in the Old Testament points forward to the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looks forward and anticipates and expects, and it's, it, the, the Old Testament is like a, a crossing guard saying, over there, over there. And time and time again, as we read the stories, as we hear the details of the Old Testament, everything is pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, come to rescue not just the Jews this time, but the whole world. Scholars, biblical scholars, estimate that there are between two and 400 different prophecies in the Old Testament that point toward Jesus. These Old Testament scholars, um, they don't agree on a lot of stuff. That's why the range is two to 400. I mean, I think we can all agree that is a lot of pointing forward toward Jesus, even if it's 200 on the low end of all those. Some are more explicit than others. Others are just a little bit more hidden. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about some of these uh, scripture texts that look forward, these scripture texts that point forward. Um, I recently ran across a book called What Are the Odds? An A to Z Collection of the Odd on Everything You Ever Hoped or Feared uh, Could Happen by Les Kranz. Maybe you've uh, read this book before, seen this book or something like it. And, and so he's just looking at all sorts of different odds. Like, for example, uh, the odds of you being struck by lightning in your lifetime are about one in every 250 million. I mean, pretty good odds, right, that you're not going to be struck by lightning. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is uh, that's over your lifetime. Uh, uh, but over year to year, the odds of you being struck by lightning are 1 in 9,100. A little more likely it's going to happen. In contrast... The odds of an average citizen in Washington, D.C. will get, quote, plugged, stabbed, or poisoned, or bludgeoned to death 
in the course of a year are only one in 1,600. It's far more likely that you're going to get stabbed, plunged, poisoned, or bludgeoned in Washington, D.C. than you're going to get struck by lightning. And those who were at the uh, Washington Nationals game last night know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it's, it's a dangerous place. These are the odds. One in, America, uh, one in ten Americans read the Bible every single day. One in two Americans goes out to eat every single day. One in 20 Americans goes to McDonald's every single day. I don't know how this guy came up with all these statistics. I'm just quoting a book here. So he's got lots and lots of odds, lots and lots of statistics. What are the odds? What are the odds of one person, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, actually being the Messiah? What are the odds of him with all those two to 400 prophecies in the Old Testament actually coming true in the person of Jesus? So here's where we're going to get into our Bibles a little bit this morning. About 700 years uh, before Jesus came on the scene. Now, of course, we're in uh, the Old Testament in the book of Micah. There is a prophecy about the Messiah. And this is what Micah writes in Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 700 years before Jesus showed up, Micah predicts, prophesies that, that of all the villages, the towns, the cities, and there were hundreds in ancient times, the Messiah was going to come from a sleepy little village called Bethlehem. But not just from Bethlehem, he also makes this prophecy that the one who is going to be the ruler, uh, the one who is going to be the Messiah, the rescuer, he's, he's going to be in the future, but he's going to have existed in the ancient past. One prophecy. Another prophecy from the uh, book of Isaiah, uh, also about 700 years uh, before Christ. Um, this is what uh, Isaiah wrote in uh, Isaiah 7. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. See, that doesn't just show up in Luke 2, right? When we read the Christmas story. That prophecy was uh, written about 700 years. And I think we can all agree that scientifically, a virgin giving birth to a son that's kind of a long shot, right? Pretty unlikely. Another one in Isaiah 9. This is perhaps the most famous one, um, a prophecy uh, that uh, 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 Handel even wrote, uh, the Messiah. This song, these familiar words. Uh, Isaiah writes this, Never let, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And this idea of those who are in distress, when the Messiah comes, the gloom will be washed away. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. This is a remarkable prophecy because nobody was thinking that the Messiah would show up in Galilee, a region known as a region of darkness, 
a region of Gentiles, a region that was people were far from God. Everybody knew, everybody expected that the Messiah was going to show up in Jerusalem. That's where Messiahs show up, right? But Isaiah says, out of the region of Galilee, Jesus was born in the south in Bethlehem, but he was raised in the north, in Nazareth. He grew up there. And much of Jesus' ministry was around that region of Galilee. We could even say that uh, Jesus made Galilee famous. And if you were to go to Galilee today, it's not just off the beaten track. It's a well-known place and it's known. It's a place where God came into the world and did some extraordinary things. This was on nobody's radar except for Isaiah 700 years earlier. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Which is another way of saying Jesus is going to carry, the Messiah will carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus did? He didn't just carry the weight for some people, but he carried the weight for all people as he took on our sin to the cross. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And even if you haven't read the Old Testament, doesn't that sound like Jesus, the Jesus that you know of the New Testament? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Out of the greatness of his government and, uh, and peace, there will be no end. When he talks about the, the place of the government, this is where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and this everlasting peace. And here we are 2,000 years later after Jesus lived on this planet. And so many of us would testify the peace that we still experience through having a relationship with Jesus Christ. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Again, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah was predicting Jesus will be in the line of David. In the lineage, that's his genealogy. And we know that he was in the line of David, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on forevermore. And this is my favorite prophecy in Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What Isaiah is saying is that when the Messiah comes, it's not going to be dependent on any people. God's going to take care of it all. The zeal of the Lord, God's passion, his love for his people. He's going to do it all. So you, you people, you don't have to do anything but receive that grace. God's going to come and restore his people again in the person of the Messiah. I want to give you another prophecy. This uh, comes from Psalm 22. And if you were to read Psalm 22, there's a bunch of them in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus came. This is what uh, is written about in Psalm 22. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. Think of Jesus on the cross. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. 
My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This, of course, is a reference to the resurrection. And if you've been around church, even if you haven't been around church, you know that they hung Jesus on a cross, right? They pierced his hand and they pierced his feet. This was written about a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross, where his hands and his feet were pierced. Now, the interesting thing about this particular prophecy is that at this point in time in history, in that region, nobody was talking about the crucifixion because it did not exist. The crucifixion, death by torture on a cross, did not show up in Rome. They learned it from another group of people. How best can we torture people? They learned it from another group of people about 300 BC. 700 years, even before the crucifixion was on anyone's mind, and it certainly wasn't on any practice, King David is saying, this is what they're going to do to the Messiah. They're going to pierce his hands and they're going to pierce his feet. How's that for a prophecy pointing ahead to the coming of the Messiah? All right, one more prophecy. Uh, this is about 500 years before Jesus came, 500 BC. This time it was written uh, by uh, Zechariah, who was another Old Testament prophet. I'm just going to read it to you. This is what Zechariah writes as he's thinking and talking and looking forward to the coming Messiah. That was the end of my covenant with them. The suffering flock was watching over me. And they knew that the Lord was speaking through my actions. And I said to them, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I'm worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this magnificent sum which they valued me. So I took 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord, written 500 years before Jesus walked on the earth. Juxtapose that text with Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and elders and said, I have sinned for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the 30 uh, silver coins in the temple and went out and hanged himself. The leading priest picked up the coins and said, it wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury since it was payment for murder. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. How many pieces of silver? 30. What did they do with the money? The potter's field. More prophecy, looking forward, anticipating the Messiah is coming. He's going to be bought with 30 pieces of silver. And the money is going to be used for the potter's field and it's going to be thrown. So these are just a few. I mean, we could look at all two to 400 here this morning. I've just given you five prophecies from the Old Testament that look forward to the coming of the Messiah. So we ask ourselves, I, I, maybe I ask myself, what are the odds? What are the odds of one 
person, in the person of Jesus Christ, fulfilling all of these two to 400 uh, different prophecies. What are the odds? Well, I ran across another book uh, that actually calculated the odds because I was curious. Um, but what they did, um, and the, the book is called Science Speaks, written by uh, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman. They wrote this book called Science Speaks, and it's based on probability. What are the odds that this one man, Jesus, the Messiah, could do all these things and live and become the person to rescue God's people? And it's based on uh, probability. And they said, we're going to just look at eight. Eight prophecies of the Old Testament. And according to their calculations, according to their math, the laws of probability, they came up with the probability of just eight of, of these prophecies from the Old Testament pointing to the person of Jesus Christ is one, or no, 10, I'm not a math person, it's 10 to the power of seven, let me get this right, t 17. 10, one in 10 to the power of 17. Let me put it this way. The likelihood, the probability that of the eight, just eight prophecies of the Old Testament could actually land in the person of Jesus Christ are one in, uh, one in 10, uh, no, one in 10 with seven, 17 zeros behind it. You know where I'm going with this? You hear what I'm saying? No, I don't either. I don't get it. It's a lot of zero. So it's one, zero, 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 17 of those. 10 to the 17th power. That's the likelihood of just eight prophecies from the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but I can't get my head around how big is that? How big is that number? I'm glad you asked. Because the authors of this book explain how big that number is. They, they compared it uh, to the state of Texas. And they said one to the power of, uh, or is it 10 to the power of 17? If you had that many silver dollars and you laid them out, it would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. That's how many coins that is. We're talking about a lot of numbers here, Right? I think we can all understand if you've ever driven across Texas, it takes you a couple days, right? Texas is a very large state, two feet deep, just all silver dollars laid out. That's how likely it would be that one person in the, in the person of Jesus Christ would fulfill just eight of those Old Testament prophecies. So think about this for a moment. You're in Dallas, Texas. Somebody puts a blindfold on you. And they say, okay, start walking. You say, which direction? Any direction you choose. But here's what you need to do. You just start walking. And when you feel like the time is right, I've placed a silver dollar with a little mark on it. You just reach down and pick it up. I mean, what's the likelihood of someone doing that? The state of Texas covered in silver dollars. Two feet deep. One in that many silver dollars. I think we can all not really get our heads about that, but it makes more sense, at least to me, than 10 to the power of 17. That's the probability of Jesus actually fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. 
pretty remarkable. I want to leave you with one more quote here. I know I've been quoting a lot today. As a chaplain of the Senate, United States Senate, a couple years ago wrote this. The fact is the birth, the crucifixion, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus are celebrated worldwide by folk of every race, language, and color every year. And believing in Jesus, they have delivered uh, from the most evil, disastrous, frustrating, debilitating habits and life form possible. And then he closes this way. The real problem with Jesus Christ is not that folks can't believe in him, but that they won't believe in him. How is it that anyone could deny that God sent Jesus Christ into the world to come and rescue his people again? The scientists tell us it's impossible. Probability tells us that can't happen. But that's exactly what's going on in the Old Testament time and time again. These prophets, these people, these stories, they point forward to the Messiah, to Jesus. So I want to bring it to, to a close this morning. What do we, as Jesus followers, as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people, what do we do with the Old Testament? We read it. We study it. We look at the Jewish people and we learn from their mistakes. Praise God, they made all those mistakes. We don't have to make those mistakes. We learn about the character of God. That no matter how much you and I sin, no matter how much we uh, fall away, turn away from God, God is always there welcoming the Israelites back and he's going to do the same thing for you and for me. And the other thing we do with the Old Testament is we look for little cues. We look for big cues. We look for examples of how time and time again, story after story again, the Old Testament points to Jesus. It says the Messiah has come. And he has come not just for the Jewish people, not just for the Israelites, not just for this, I will be your God and you will be my people. But the theology, the understanding of the New Testament, it's not just about this, this exclusive group, but now God has come for all the world, even for the Gentiles, even for you and for me. And I think that is good news. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for all of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation. God, we thank you for that special relationship you had with the Jewish people uh, for a couple thousand years, God. All the ways, Lord, in which your Old Testament points to your Son, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, the one who would come and who has come to rescue your people again. But God, you didn't just leave it there. You invited the whole world into this special relationship. And so God, as we think about all the ways in which you have pointed us and, and humanity for the last couple thousand years toward your son, give us faith, God. Give us faith to believe it. Give us courage to believe it. Give us boldness to share your good news with others, Lord. Because on the one hand, it is remarkably unbelievable. On the other hand, God, we look at the Old Testament and it points to you and your son. And we ask ourselves, how could anyone not believe that Jesus has come to seek and save and rescue uh, the lost and all of your children? 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.